ended with a great word of hope. It started off with, in the last stanza of the stricken, smitten, and afflicted by saying, here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, is the name of which we boast. Lamb of God, for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt, none shall ever be confounded, to on him their hope have built. You may wonder this morning, as we have gathered to worship God on Easter Sunday, a Sunday that's supposed to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, why are we talking about his death? Why are we starting off talking about the death of Jesus? Friends, you realize that had Jesus not resurrected, his death would have been meaningless and pointless. We would not be talking today about his death had he not resurrected and proven that everything he said he would do through his death came to be true because he overcame the last and the greatest of enemies, death itself. Would you open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. We'll be reading from that place, Isaiah 52, 13, to Isaiah 53, verse 12. As we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Isaiah, today we get to talk about the suffering servant of the Lord. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 613. And as you're turning your Bibles to that, pa- to that passage, we as a congregation have been going for the number of months through the book of Isaiah. And it just so happens that today, on Easter Sunday, we are arriving and looking more intently at this passage at Isaiah 52 and 53. Here's God's word for us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of a children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant. And like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they have made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Pray with me. O Lord, you have revealed to us your great servant, And what you had planned for him to do and what you have done for him and to him on our behalf. Father, as we hear this word, would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us see the glory of your salvation through Jesus? And may your salvation change our hearts. Give us new life so that Christ would be exalted and his victory would be our victory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. In one of the well-known passages in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit reveals to Philip to go and meet a man who was going to Gaza, meet him and talk to him, Philip goes on that road and He meets this Ethiopian eunuch and hears him read a portion of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament prophecies. And the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch happened to to read was a prophecy of Isaiah, the prophecy we've just read. This passage is known as the Song of the Servant of the Lord. It's a fourth one. It's a fourth song in the book of Isaiah. It's a beautifully constructed text that has five stanzas that speak about what God promised to do through his servant 
and to his servant. Up to this point in the book of Isaiah, God has revealed his servant three times. We have seen the the song of the servant in chapter 42, in chapter 49, in chapter 50, and now in chapter 52 and 53. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God has revealed his people their sinfulness. The book of Isaiah started with five chapters that laid before his people some very provoking images of what his people were like in their sin. For five chapters, God was trying to hammer home that his people have sinned. And then in chapter 6, God reveals himself to Isaiah, and Isaiah sees the Lord holy and lifted up and exalted. And Isaiah recognizes when he sees the Lord, the glory of God, he recognizes and says, Woe is me, for I am a sinner. I have unclean lips, and I live among a people who are sinners who have unclean lips. Throughout the story of Isaiah, God has been communicating to his prophet that God is about to judge the sin of his people. And for for 39 more chapters, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God has revealed how his people would continue to mistrust the Lord, would continue to turn their backs against God. And God would bring the exile. But the message that God has entrusted to Isaiah was not just a message of judgment, but also a message of salvation, a message of rescue. And in chapter 40, we have seen how God announces that he is about to bring comfort to his people, to bring rescue. But how is God going to do it? From chapter 40 on, especially, we see God's promises of bringing salvation and rescue. But, but how? Have you ever seen or, or read story, fiction where a plot, a story develops, and, and the scenario is set up, a crisis is, is developed, it's being explained, and then, and then a solution is being brought to solve the crisis of the story. Or a movie that, that begins and unfolds, and the crisis uh, becomes clear pretty quickly in the movie. And have you noticed how the best stories or the best movies don't simply tell you the ending and just leave you with the ending? What makes a story beautiful is how the rescue actually unfolds. How the salvation, how the, how the operation of the problem gets resolved. It's not just in the news that somehow there'll be a happy ending. If all stories or all movies will tell you from the beginning, the story will end well. Would you, would you read it? No, what, what keeps us going and engaged, it's how is it that, they, that the, the rescue operation gets to unfold? Well, friends, throughout the book of Isaiah, we've been told the problem. God has been hinting at the fact that he's going to provide rescue. But up until now, for 52 chapters, God has not told us the details. And it's until chapter 52 and 53, we have have waited all until now to finally get to see how is it that a holy God who judges sin who cannot stand in the presence of sinners, how is it that he will rescue rebellious people like the people of Israel and he will bring them to be like him? 
In chapter 52, verse 1, we see a glimpse of this tension. How in chapter 52, verse 1, God says to his people, he calls them on one side that they are, they are in bondage. They are in ruin. And yet in the same verse, he called them a holy city. How is it that God can call the people who are in bondage to sin and rebellion, and yet for God to call them a holy city? In various texts throughout Isaiah, we have seen this tension. But now, in chapter 52 and 53, we get to hear the details of how is it that God takes care and develops and unfolds the story of his rescue. As we look at this passage, there will be four truths about God's suffering servant. Four truths that, that show us how is it that God will unfold his salvation. It'll be through his suffering servant. And here are four truths about his suffering servant. The first truth that God tells us about his suffering servant is that God's suffering servant will succeed and be exalted. In verses 13 through 15, we see the first stanza of this poem, and it presents us with an enigma. On one side, we see a great news starting off from the very beginning of the song. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. The first description that the servant shall act wisely refers to the wisdom that leads to accomplish a desired goal. That's why some Bible translations translate this phrase as, the servant shall act prudently. Another translation says, my servant will prosper. Another translation says, my servant will succeed. These are different ways Bible translations interpret this verse that the, the servant of the Lord will accomplish, will succeed, will act wisely. The success of the servant is then unfolded in three other actions. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, if you've been reading through Isaiah, if we started in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, you remember that this is a description of God himself in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Here, God says that his servant shall be high and lifted up and exalted. These are terms that describe God himself. This servant will not be just a regular person. He will be and have the honor of God himself. This fourth servant of the song begins with this great image of great exaltation, of great honor. Now, if we stopped at verse 13, the message would be very clear. There'd be no enigma. There'd be no problem to this passage. But the passage doesn't stop at verse 13. It moves on to verse 14. And the rest of the poem, for the rest of the poem, we are in shock. Because verse 14 introduces us to a suffering servant. We find out that the servant that was promised to be exalted became so marred that he was beyond human semblance. And his form was beyond that of a children of mankind. How is it? How is it that the servant will act wisely or prudently or successfully when he will be rejected, despised, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief? This doesn't sound like a recipe for success, does it? The world would tell us that wise people 
know how to get out of trouble. Wise people know how to avoid rejection and sorrows. Wise people know how to protect themselves against such experiences. And here the servant who experiences all the deep suffering is still described as acting wisely. The wisdom of God is not the wisdom of this world. From the suffering of verse 14, we are introduced to the worldwide influence of his suffering. In verse 15, we are told that he shall sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling in the Old Testament was often used as a symbol of cleansing, of purifying. And here we are told that the the suffering of the servant will cleanse, will purify not only the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but, but the many nations. His influence will be worldwide. More so in verse 15, we're told that kings shall shut their mouths because of him. In ancient times, kings were, were the highest human authority. But when they come to understand the message of the, of the servant, they will stand speechless. The highest, the highest human authorities will not be able to respond back to the servant's mission when they fully come to grasp what he has been about. These are promises of how God introduces and what God will do to his servant and how the servant will accomplish his mission. He's a suffering servant who will succeed and be exalted. Now we'll see the theme of of exaltation again at the end of the song. But for now, let's see how the song unpacks. God's recipe for success for his suffering servant is quite different than what we would expect. The path of the servant's success, the path of the servant's wisdom, is a path through suffering and shame. We're not used to that path. We need to let this introductory stanza of this poem startle us afresh. The path to glory and honor is a path of humbling and suffering. But the second point we see about this servant of of the Lord is that God's suffering servant has been dismissed and despised. How do people react when they hear the message of of God's suffering servant? In verses 1 through 9 of chapter 53, we see a few of these ways described. Their responses of disbelief, their responses of dismissal, their responses of rejection. Chapter 53 begins with two questions. Who has believed? What he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the prophet recognizes from the beginning in this passage that this message about the servant of the Lord as a suffering servant will be dismissed. Because people will refuse to believe. Because the servant's appearance had nothing to impress our eyes. In verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, dear friends, humanly speaking, the earthly origins of the servant were unimpressive. If we follow the birth narratives about Jesus, they had the marks of unimpressiveness. He was born into a poor family, a family with no earthly prestige, no earthly status. He was born in a stable. If all we saw was what our physical eyes could see, we would be unimpressed by the servant. Now, friends, it's amazing that when God sent his servant, 
He did not send him to impress our physical tastes or our physical desires. Quite the opposite. The servant of the Lord was easily missed and was easily dismissed. God did not attract people with a flashy servant, but with one that men could easily turn away from. He was not only unimpressive, but he was despised and rejected by men. In verse 3, we see twice the reference with being despised. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Did you notice twice this reference to being despised? Before verse 3 ends, there's a change. Isaiah not only speaks about people in general who have despised a servant of the Lord. In, at the end of chapter of, of verse 3, he turns it to we. In other words, it's not just people out there that have despised and rejected the Lord. We, Isaiah says, we have esteemed him not. There was a time, dear friends, when none of us esteemed the servant of the Lord. There was a time when none of us esteemed the servant of the Lord. And perhaps this morning there are some among us who are still not esteeming the servant of the Lord. To esteem can mean to value, to treasure, to consider valuable. If you are in this category of being among those who are still not esteeming the servant of the Lord, friends, recognize all of us have been there at one point. As the text progresses, as Isaiah reveals to us why, we have great reasons to value and esteem God's suffering servant. God's suffering servant, third of all, the third point that we see in this passage, God's suffering servant was our substitute. This is why we can esteem him. I mentioned that verses 4 through uh, 6 are perhaps the center of this poem. They are the heart of this poem because they begin to illustrate what was the significance of the suffering of the servant of the Lord. And why is it that we can turn away from a place of not esteeming the servant to a place of esteeming him? In verse 4, in verse four Isaiah begins to understand that the suffering of the servant was not simply that he was stricken by God because of his problems, because of his griefs and sorrows. Verse 4 begins laying out both the, the reason why he suffered and in some ways Isaiah still is misunderstanding. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In the Old Testament, to be crucified was a sign of being cursed by God. The Jewish leaders had no problem with giving Jesus that sentence. They demanded from the Roman authorities to crucify Christ. It was a sign that Jesus would not be the Messiah. To be stricken by God in such an awful way, no one would believe in such a suffering servant as God's appointed means of rescue. But verse 5, there's a huge but. Verse 5 begins with a 
clear contradiction. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. These phrases make clear the meaning of the death of the servant. His death was a substitution. He suffered what was reserved for us to suffer. We were destined to be wounded for our transgressions. We were destined to be crushed for our iniquities. And friends, that's what sin will bring us. Rightly. Justly. We were destined to endure the crushing and the wrath of God. But instead, the servant of the Lord was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. But it didn't stop there. The servant didn't only take upon himself our sorrows and griefs. No, he also took upon himself a chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with God. Friends, there is no peace with God without this chastisement which a servant endured. That's why in order to be made right with God, we must rely entirely on the chastisement that Christ experienced in our place. That is the only way we can be reconciled with God. The stripes that the servant endured are the means also for our healing. Not just physical healing, spiritual healing as well. And in verse 6, Isaiah exposes more of our problem. He says, we, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Friends, the Bible presents sin, our sin, as not simply committing some big social crimes. I'm amazed how often people, even today, still think that if they have not done big crimes that they're still good people, that they must be on the right track. We have heard that impression even from our testimonies earlier in the service. Friends, the Bible defines sin as going astray because we are going in our own way. We think that if we go in our own way, we're going right. Right? How many of us think that as long as I'm going my own way, I'm going the right way? How many of you struggle to make sure that no one tells you which way to go, but that you want to go your own way? Because you think that your own way is the right way. Isaiah says, God says, To turn our own way is to go astray. Isaiah says, and God says, that whenever we want to go our own way, we go astray. And this problem is not just for a few among us. It's for all of us. We all, or Isaiah starts with, all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Friends, to go our own way is to go to the way of iniquity. 
To go our own way is to go the way of rebellion against God. To go our own way is to go on the path that triggers God's justful, rightful judgment against us. Yet here's amazing news. That even though we all have gone astray, we all have turned everyone to his own way, yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How is it that our rebellion and sin was placed on Christ? Who placed our sin on the servant? God did. In other words, the reason why the servant suffered this way, the ultimate reason why Jesus was crucified was not because the Jews demanded Jesus to be crucified. It was not because Pilate decreed the crucifixion of Christ. It was not because the Roman soldiers hammered the nails in the wrists and feet of Jesus. All those things are true, and they happen. And those who have done it will bear responsibility for what they have done. But the ultimate cause of why the servant was crushed was because of God. God laid on the servant the iniquity of us all. God the Father chose to substitute His own Son so that our iniquities could be paid by Jesus. So that through His suffering, we can experience a peace with God. Friends, without this substitution, none of us would be able to have peace with God. Without this substitution, none of us could earn our way to God. Our sins cannot be wiped away by how good we try to be. Our sins cannot be forgiven by trying to outweigh our sin with good works. Our sin cannot be cleansed by thinking that we are good people. The only way for our sins to be forgiven by a holy God is if they are paid for. They have been laid on Jesus. So that through Jesus, God can now extend forgiveness of sins to anyone who would repent and trust in Christ. To anyone who recognizes the depth of sin, the seriousness of sin, the wrath of God which sin triggers. Christ is the only way our sins can be forgiven. Friend, if you trust upon yourself or upon your goodness to be sufficient reasons for God to receive you, you are making a great misjudgment. Our only way to have our sin dealt with is by relying and trusting that God laid our sins upon Christ. And when we respond to God with that turning away from sin and trusting in Christ, it changes us inside out. In verse 8, we are told that no one knew that the servant was a substitute for our sins. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? The point is, no one, no one thought that the servant was cut off, stricken for the transgressions of God's people. We needed God's revelation to tell us this meaning. If we just looked at the cross without the revelation of what the death of the servant would mean, we would not understand that it was a death by substitution. 
We need God's revealed word to help us understand the meaning of the death of his servant. That's why the, the, the prophet asks in verse 1, says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The servant suffered as a substitute willingly. We see that in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Why is this significant? And then we are given two pictures, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Those of us who don't know about sheep and lambs, when you lead a lamb to be slaughtered, he doesn't cry, he doesn't make sounds. You know why? Because he has no idea what awaits him. Jesus knew every detail of what awaits him. And he still kept silent. No objection. No sound to resist. When the Roman soldiers came to take him, one of the disciples pulled out a sword and wanted to, to resist the, the arrest. And Jesus says, oh no, don't do that. And Jesus healed the servant of the very soldier who tried to come and arrest Jesus. Jesus was not resisting any of the steps that led him to his slaughter. Jesus, unlike the lamb, knew everything that would happen to him. And yet, like the lamb that would be totally silent, he kept silent because he went ahead to be slaughtered as a substitute willingly. Oh, friends, think about how any of us, if given the ability to avoid suffering, think how many of us would take the, take the, the avoidance path in a heartbeat. Or when we endure suffering, think about how often we resist it. We begrudge against it. But not so with God's servant. He had the ability to resist it. He knew what was coming, and yet willingly he chose a path of suffering because he wanted to be the substitute. And the suffering of the servant was a substitute innocently. He suffered as a substitute, not only willingly, but innocently. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Oh, friends, the servant was destined to be buried with a wicked, but he actually was buried in a tomb of a rich man. And centuries later, when Jesus actually was crucified, and after his death was taken off the cross and buried, indeed he was put in a new tomb of a rich man. Prophecy has been fulfilled. All of this has been predicting forward to the sufferings of Christ. From verse 4 to 9, we see that God's suffering suffering servant died a violent death as a substitute for our sins. The substitution was in God's mind so that he could grant us peace with him. The substitution was carried out willingly by the servant, even though the servant was totally innocent. And then finally, the song ends with a final point. God's servant will be victorious and satisfied. The last, the ending, the last few verses of the song repeat some of the themes that that were introduced at the beginning. Even though we don't see the, the word resurrection in, this, in these verses, in verses 10 through 12, 
what happens to the servant in these final verses, we see our clear indication that the servant's life does not end with his burial, but with victory and with satisfaction. Let's see how. Notice the repeated refrain in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And the servant comes to, as the servant come, uh, song comes to an end, it repeats its main theme of the death of the servant at the will of the Lord. But the will of the Lord did not stop at the crushing of the servant. Notice what else was involved in the will of the Lord. Verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. In other words, Christ, once he has offered his life as a guilt offering, as a sacrificial death, he will see his offspring. Through dying, Christ will get to see a new people that he is begetting. His people have rebelled against God, but by dying as their substitute, Christ gets to beget a new people, and he makes them to be his offspring. And verse 10, we also see that God will prolong his days despite his death. We also see in verse 10 that the Lord will make his will prosper in the hand of the servant. Oh, friends, the servant will succeed. The will of the Lord will prosper in the hands of the servant. And notice in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Oh, friends, the servant ends this drama of rescue with satisfaction. He will be satisfied. There's no resentfulness here. There's a, the servant of, who accepted God's will willingly and would not hold any grudge against his father, but will be fully satisfied. And then verse 11, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, by knowing what the servant has done for us, Jesus makes many to be accounted righteous, to be declared righteous. Our only means by which we can be declared right with God is by knowing and embracing what the servant has done for us. That is why our justification is by faith alone through Christ alone. And, and this song then ends with, with a great picture, with a great promise in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, why is this a glorious picture? The only ones who can divide the spoil are those who win the war. The only ones who have the right or have anything to divide in terms of a spoil is, is those who have won a battle. And in chapter 52, we have seen that God promised to come to his people as a conquering and victorious king. And now we are told in chapter 53 that God will make his servant to divide the spoil with the strong. Oh, friends, not only is the servant, the suffering servant, a victorious servant, but he is dividing. He's sharing the spoil of victory with others. He doesn't keep it for himself. And friends, that is a benefit that we extend in the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about the benefits that Jesus has obtained for us through his death and his resurrection. So that anyone 
who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ would be the recipients of the new life, of the peace with God that Christ has obtained. Friends, this is what we are about. This is why this service is so important. As we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, as we celebrate the victory that he has won, he doesn't keep it to himself. He's sharing it. In just a few moments, we will see a visible manifestation of the sharing of the spoil. As we have heard the testimonies of, of, our, of our three sisters who have experienced the victory of God in their lives over sin, over the guilt of sin, over the power of sin. Friends, baptism is a picture of sharing in the spoil of the victorious suffering servant. We share in that by being united with Christ in his death and being united with him in his resurrection so that we will share into the benefits of his death and share into the power of his new life. If Jesus died for us, for all those who repent and trust in Christ, baptism is a picture that we unite ourselves with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Why? Because God has sent his servant and made him victorious so that he would share the spoil with the many. Oh, friends, that's why this is a great news of what we declare. God's servant will succeed and be exalted. God's suffering servant has been dismissed and despised. God's suffering servant has or was our substitute. God's suffering servant will be victorious and satisfied. One of the songs we have introduced in our congregation to sing speaks about this great importance of being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And the words of the song, Not in Me, speak to that truth. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtue I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Now, friends, if you ever think that there's something you can do by your own power, by your own goodness, by your own good works to earn you a place with God, the message we want to declare to you today is none of that will be sufficient and enough. The only means by us and our sins to be dealt with and forgiven is if they are laid on Christ. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Let us pray. Father who are in heaven, you have revealed to us a great mystery. You have revealed to us in slow motion how you are planning to rescue sinners like us. Father, we thank you that you have provided a servant, your servant, your only begotten son, who although he had been glorified from eternity past, he became incarnate, took upon himself human flesh, and died the most excruciating death, so that through his suffering, through his sorrows, our sins have been laid on him. So that through his death and through his resurrection, you can share with us the victory of your salvation. Father, we pray that that victory would be ours for every one of us who is gathered here in your name. 
We pray that Christ would be exalted. We pray that Christ would be lifted up in every one of our hearts so that we may experience peace with you forever and ever.